Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. When you're starting a new business, names are important. Uh, there's research that was done recently, uh, I think fairly recently, where they found that 72% of consumers would make purchases based on brand names. 74% of people uh, between the ages of 21 to 35 would pay more for a product with a brand name that they like and trust. So when you start a new business, a name matters. And what that name means, the reputation matters as well. And there's a number of companies that have started that have either not succeeded or not done as well as they could have done because of bad names. For example, there was a web hosting company similar to Zoom, um, and it was, the name was Dim Dim. Uh, Dim means not having a lot of light or not having a lot of intelligence, so it's bizarre that they'd call their web hosting company Dim Dim. And you have someone, you know, you wonder if they would have had a different name if they would have become Zoom. Uh, there's the Fifth Third Bank. The Fifth Third Bank. I don't know what sense that makes. The Fifth Third Bank. Um, and the reason it was called the Fifth Third Bank was because back in 1908, the Fifth Bank merged with the Third Bank. And so they came, became the Fifth Third Bank. Probably should have changed their name with that mer uh, merger. Uh, one of my favorites, the Passmore Gas Company. <laughs> Passmore Gas Company. Le legit. Uh, one that I saw, a local company, Amigon Funeral Home, that's spelled M-I-Gon Funeral Home. Um, even have successful businesses like Amazon that actually started with a different name. The original name of Amazon was Cadabra, uh, short for Abracadabra. Um, and uh, Jeff Bezos had the foresight pretty early on in the company to realize, first of all, people didn't really understand that it was a short for Abracadabra. And second, they had trouble spelling it, so trying to put it into their search browser was difficult. And so he changed the name to Amazon, and it became the company it is today. Uh, there's also a lot of churches that have bad names, uh, like the Boring United Methodist Church in the town of Boring, Maryland. There's the Halfway Baptist Church. Uh, there's several First Baptist Churches. There's Ninth Baptist Churches. I don't know why there's not any, like, Second or Third Baptist churches. Um, there's the Little Hope Baptist Church. These are all real names. Um, there's the Fire Baptized Holiness Church of God of the Americas. It's a mouthful. There's the Country Club Christian Church. The Country Club Christian Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and then one of my favorites, the Flippin' Church of God. The Flippin' Church of God from Flippin', Arkansas. <laughs> Names matter and words matter. And the way something is named can influence our perception of it. And I think the same thing is true in the way that we describe the Bible sometimes. Uh, we separate the Bible into the Old Testament and the New Testament. And 
Now, before you get all upset, I'm not criticizing the Bible. I'm criticizing how we understand it and sometimes how we refer to it. You think about the term Old Testament, and it's kind of open to misunderstanding and misinterpretation. And the term Old Testament wasn't something that was given by the writers of Scripture. In fact, it came much later in the second century. There was a uh, bishop named um, Melito of Sardis, and he coined the term Old Testament. Uh, when Jesus referred to what we call the Old Testament, he usually referred to it as the law and the prophets. So we think about the term Old Testament, and it's not wrong, but it kind of gives us some misunderstanding and misinterpretation sometimes. And uh, sometimes we think that things that are old are things that are no longer relevant, things that are obsolete. So, for example, I have an iPhone 4 in my basement. It was the phone that my wife had when we first met. Um, the screen is shattered into about 100 pieces. Um, the battery maybe would hold a half hour or an hour charge. Uh, it's got an extremely slow processor. Uh, you can't connect it to even some of the Wi-Fi networks that we have today. You can't connect it to a lot of the cellular ne networks that we have today. It's got a big 5 megapixel camera with it. Um, really small screen, you know, and think about that, screen cracked, battery isn't really working very well, slow processor, what are you going to do with something like that? You throw it out, you recycle it. And the only reason we have it, I think, is just we haven't taken it to get recycled yet. We think about things that are old become obsolete and, you know, kind of in our disposable culture, we just, we get rid of them. You know, if food goes bad in our refrigerator, uh, something's in your, in your refrigerator for six weeks, it starts to get moldy, it starts to get kind of slimy and black, and we take it out and throw it out. That's what you do with something that gets old and, and obsolete. And sometimes we have that mindset when it comes to the Old Testament. Uh, we, what use is the Old Testament when we have the New Testament? The Old Testament was the old way, inferior way. The New Testament is the new way. It's far superior to the Old Testament and uh, there are some people throughout history, the history of the church, who have outrightly rejected the Old Testament. Uh, there was one theologian who was widely regarded to be a heretic named Marcion in the second century, and he taught that uh, basically the Old Testament is not only not applicable to Christians, but it's incompatible with Christianity. And he went so far as teaching that the God of the Old Testament was a different God than the God of the New Testament. Uh, he taught that the God of the Old Testament was a vengeful, primal deity who uh, was basically out for judgment and out for blood. And, and the, the, the Bible, uh, or the God that Jesus proclaimed and that Paul proclaimed uh, was a God of love and a God of mercy. Uh, I believe he even went so far as to rejecting Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well um, because of their kind of Jewish heritage. So there's many people throughout the history of the church who have re outwardly rejected the Old Testament. Um, you look at Nazi Germany, and the Nazis actually rejected the Old Testament for different reasons, for prejudicial uh, reasons, political recent reasons. And not, November 9, 1938, Nazi, Nazi forces smashed windows and set fire to 1,400 synagogues all across Germany and Austria, and they destroyed thousands of Torah scrolls. And as they did so, they made it a public spectacle. Uh, in one small town, the scrolls were sent rolling down a street, and Hitler youth went on bicycles, rode over them. In Berlin, the scrolls were burned in the public square. Um, as Torah scrolls burned in a synagogue's yard in Dusseldorf, German men, some wearing the robes of the rabbis and cantors, danced around the fire. It became known as the Night of the Broken Glass, or Kristallnacht in German. 
And so they had this passionate hatred for uh, the Jewish people, and uh, that kind of was personified in rejecting the Old Testament scriptures. And, of course, there was hatred involved there, but it was also an intentional act. They were trying to do away with the Jewish heritage of the Bible. And they were trying to construct this new German Christianity that had no dependence upon the Old Testament and, and, the, and the Jewish people. Uh, one scholar writes this, Burning the Hebrew Bible scrolls was a project to construct a new German Christianity that would owe nothing to the Jews and to other Christian Europeans. The enslavement of the Europeans to the Nazis' worldview depended on the destruction of the Jews first. On February 3, 1944, the Reich Press Office announced the Jewish question is the key to world history. Now, of course, this was a political, prejudicial action, but in the mind of many Christians, even today, we've kind of burned the Old Testament as being irrelevant, out of touch, and not useful for us as believers. And during Jesus' day, people were probably wondering the same thing. Jesus comes to the earth, and he proclaims this message that was pretty harsh, uh, against the Jewish leaders. Uh, he spoke against the Pharisees, the scribes. He says things that made the religious leaders kind of scratch their heads. And so people were probably wondering, many people thought, okay, Jesus has come, and he's come to abolish the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not useful. The Old Testament is wrong. Now Jesus is here, and he's going to show us the right way to go. And Jesus confronts that pretty harshly in this passage we just looked at. And again, he says that he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. He says, I've come to fulfill them. That is, Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the law and the prophets pointed towards. He was the embodiment of the law. He was what they longed for, what the law and the prophets were pushing towards. He completed and fulfilled the whole law in everything that he did. And so Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law, he came to fulfill the law. Jesus goes further. He says that not even an iota or a dot will pass away from the law until heaven and earth pass away, until all things are accomplished, basically till the end of time. Now, during the time of Jesus, the rabbis talked about um, how the scriptures were very important and how you couldn't have a dot disappear from the law. Uh, when they referred to a dot, they were referring to the Hebrew letter Yod, which was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, it's kind of similar to an apostrophe, just a little small mark. And they taught that even a, a, a dot couldn't disappear from the Old Testament law. And they used an example from uh, the book of Genesis. Remember in Genesis uh, where God changes uh, Sarai's name to Sarah? Well, there was a Yod at the end of the name Sarai, and it was removed to become Sarah. Then fast forward a little bit, and Moses is uh, renaming Hosea to Joshua. And as he, rename, he, as he renames Joshua, there's a yod that's added to the front of the name Hosea. So the rabbis taught, th this is an example, say, they would say, see, not even a yod can disappear from the Old Testament. That it's, it's taken away from Sarah, it must be added to Joshua. Uh, they even taught that uh, Solomon tried to remove one yod from the Old Testament, and God warned him that he would uproot him from his kingdom before he would uproot one yod. And so Jesus kind of affirms that mindset that every part of the Old Testament is important, and none of it will pass away. 
He goes further and says that uh, those who relax even the least of these commandments and teach others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And, and those who keep the law and th- who uh, encourage others to do the same will be great in the kingdom of heaven. And uh, Jesus, when he's talking about the least and the greatest commandment, that it, it was kind of a dichotomy that the rabbis had uh, between the least and the greatest or the light and the heavy laws. So the, the least or the light laws would be things like tithing a percentage of your produce. You have to tithe 10% of your produce. Uh, a heavy or great command would be something like not murdering or not committing adultery that are, you know, ha- carry more mer- uh, moral weight in their minds. And so Jesus says, even the least of these matter, even the small things, the things that you don't think matter, they matter and are important. So clearly, the Old Testament was very important to Jesus. But then the question comes up, based on this passage, does this mean that Jesus intends for his people to follow all of the Old Testament law? And the answer is, surprisingly, yes, but not in the same way. He calls us to fulfill the law, but not in the same way that the Jews did. Now, some of the laws in the Old Testament were civil and ceremonial laws, things like you know, laws related to sacrifices, laws related to how you plant a, a type of seed. And, and then there's moral laws like you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall have no other gods before the true God. But Jesus said you can sum up the law and the prophets in two commands, love God, love people. A young ruler comes to Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 and says, Teacher, which is the great, command, great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So again, we look at the Old Testament. There's some universal principles that apply in every culture It's never a loving thing to commit adultery. It's never a loving thing to murder. It's never a loving thing to steal. Any culture, it's the same thing. It's never loving to do those things. It's universal. And then there's other things like those civil and ceremonial laws. We don't follow them like Israel followed them. For Israel, it was an expression of their love for God. And so the way that an Israelite loved God was by keeping the law, by performing these sacrifices. And so we don't keep those civil ceremonial laws, but we can look at them as examples of how we can best love our neighbor as ourselves. So one example, uh, one writer named Carmen Joy Imms gives, is from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 8. It says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fall from it. Now, this seems like a really... Bizarre law. Uh, I had to look up what a parapet was. I had no idea what a parapet was. Um, But a parapet was uh, basically on a roof. And, you know, in the ancient world, uh, the roof would kind of be an extension of your house. You know, houses weren't that big. Um, They lived in a climate where, you know, they could go on the roof a lot. And so they would have stairs that would go up to a flat roof. Everybody had a flat roof. And so they would hang out there, converse, do a lot of different things. Uh, on their roof, and it was an extension of their home. Now, if you have a roof that's completely flat, it's easy for someone to fall off. To prevent that, you'd build a parapet, which was basically the walls would come up above, uh, b- above the roof line. 
So if people are up there and hanging out, they're not going to fall over the ledge. Now, you look at that, and we're living in a very different culture. We don't have flat roofs, or most of us don't have a flat roof. Uh, we don't build paraffits around it. We don't hang out on our roof. So it seems very separated from us, but there's a principle there we can learn from. And the principle was, if someone enters into your home, you want to make sure that they're safe. You want to make sure if they go up on the roof, they're not going to fall off the roof. So we don't have to follow that exact command. It doesn't apply to us, but the principle does. And, and maybe that looks like, if someone's coming over to our house, maybe it looks like salting the pathway so they don't fall. You know, if we have someone that's older coming over, maybe it's making sure that there's a handle for them to grab on when, when they come in. And, and so the principle applies to us. It's an example of how we can love our neighbor by having anyone that comes into our house as safe as possible. So it doesn't apply to us in the same way it applied to Israel, but we can take principles and, and, and apply them to, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so we need the Old Testament to help us, and we need both the New and the Old Testament working together. The New Testament shows us what the Old Testament means. And the Old Testament doesn't make sense for us unless we see the New Testament. And so we don't read it in the same way. We don't read the Old Testament like the Israelites did. We read it in light of Christ. We read it, read it in light of the way that he's applied it to the command of loving neighbor and loving God. Uh, Matt Woodley tells a story about how he was in a softball league, uh, kind of a casual softball league like the softball, men's softball league we have here. And um, his coach just got enraged over this call that the, the umpire made. And so his coach goes over to the call and didn't like how he was interpreting this particular rule. And so the umpire brings out his rule book and says, here it is, here's the rule, page 27, paragraph 3, section B. He says, as you can clearly see, I've applied this rule correctly. And the coach responded and said, I don't think that's what it was meant. The umpire responded and said, um, I think I should know I, I wrote the rule book. And after an awkward silence, the coach walked back to his bench, sh shook his head, and pointing to the, to the umpire, he said, get a hold of that guy. He wrote the rule book. As believers in Christ, we look to Christ who wrote the book, and we see what the intention of the law was. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When Paul is writing this, he's not writing about the New Testament primarily. He's primarily writing about the Old Testament. And so to do away with the Old Testament is a great tragedy. The Old Testament helps us in, in our development as believers. We need the Old Testament. It's useful for us. And so that's a lot of theological background uh, regarding the Old Testament, but how does this apply to our life? How can we take what is taught by Jesus in this passage and apply it to our life? I think the first thing that Jesus tells us in this passage is that if we're not holy, we're not healthy. If we're not holy, we're not healthy. We're not saved by obedience to the law. We're not saved by our works. But Jesus requires us to keep the law, loving God and loving people. Not the letter of the law, the heart of the law. And the Old Testament believers were in the same boat. 
They were saved in the same way. They were saved by grace through faith. Not by works, but by Christ and by his grace. Sometimes we get confused by that. Sometimes we feel like the Old Testament is irrelevant. I know when I was growing up and, and grew up in a Christian church, I had this mindset in the Old Testament, people were saved by works. In the New Testament, people were saved by grace. But throughout the Old Testament, it's always by grace. It's always by grace through faith. Now, it looked different for the Old Testament believers that loving God meant keeping the law. And so for us, we don't keep the law in the same way. It has a different application. But they were still saved by grace. In the Old Testament, loving God meant doing sacrifices. We don't do sacrifices because we have the perfect sacrifice, Christ, who paid the penalty for our sins. And so they were saved by grace. It just looked different. And if you have any other questions about that, you look at Hebrews chapter 11, and, and it kind of explains kind of the hall of faith, how even the patriarchs of faith uh, of the faith were saved by faith, not of works. Tim Keller struggled with this as a young pastor and uh, believer. He said, I found the Old Testament to be confusing in an off-putting part of the Bible. But he was at a study center, and this great Bible scholar, Alex Montier, was there. And he was asked a question about the seeming disjointedness of the Old and New Testament. Keller writes this, I will always remember his answer. Dr. Montier insisted that we're all one people of God. Then he asked us to imagine how the Israelites under Moses would have given their testimony to someone who asked for it. They would have said something like this, We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death, but our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promise of God, took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and he led us out. Now we are on the way to the promised land. We're not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us. And through blood sacrifice, we also have his presence in our midst. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. Then Dr. Moyer concluded, now think about it. A Christian today could say the same thing almost word for word. Keller says, my young self was thunderstruck. I had held this vague, unexamined impression that in the Old Testament people were saved through obeying a host of detailed laws, but that today we were freely forgiven and accepted by faith. This little thought experiment showed me in a stroke not only that the Israelites had been saved by grace and that God's salvation had been by costly atonement and grace all along, but also that the pursuit of holiness, pilgrimage, obedience, and deep community should characterize Christians as well. So we see clearly in the scriptures, as Jesus says here, he hasn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. Just because we're saved by grace doesn't mean that Christ doesn't call us to be holy. He calls us to be changed. He calls us to be different. The second thing we see in this passage is that Christ calls us to something far deeper than the law does. He calls us to far, something far deeper than the law does. In verse 20, Jesus says something that would have been stunning to those who heard it. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. This statement would have been shocking to those who heard it because when it came to perceived righteousness, when it came to keeping the law, there was nobody greater than the Pharisees and the scribes. They were so fastidious about keeping the law. They were thought to be the spiritual heroes of the day. And so if Jesus is saying your righteousness needs to exceed them, that would have been shocking and stunning and seemingly impossible. 
many of the Pharisees had what were called fence laws. That is, they not only wanted to keep the law, but they wanted to keep themselves from even being getting close to the law. So as where there, there is their command to keep the Sabbath and not work on the Sabbath, they would want to protect that and say, well, not only can you not work on the Sabbath, you can't even carry your mat on the Sabbath because we don't want to even get close to working. And so when it came to righteousness, when it came to keeping the law, they had it all figured out. And people would have looked to them as the spiritual heroes of the day. And yet Jesus says, your righteousness needs to go deeper than that. Your righteousness needs to exceed the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus goes and explains what that looks like in the passages following this. He says, it says in the law, don't murder. But I'm telling you, don't be the type of person that wants to murder someone else. I know in the law it says don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, not only don't commit adultery, don't be the type of person that wants to commit adultery. I know it says in the law that, you know, if you want to get a divorce, do this. I'm telling you, don't get divorced. You know, and of course he gives a couple exceptions there. It says in the law, it says, you know, honor your oath and what to swear by. He says, I'm telling you, you don't need to swear. You don't need to take an oath. Be honest in everything that you do. Be trustworthy in every area of your life. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love just not only those who love you, but love those who persecute you, who treat you poorly. Now, for those who are hearing this, this would have been an incredible, incredibly weighty thing. It would have been incredibly discouraging in a sense. I mean, it's, it's a lot easier to keep the letter of the law than the heart of the law. And yet Jesus declares that basically in the law, the law says, this is what you should do. And Jesus says, I'm not telling you what you should do. I'm saying this is who you should be. It's a lot harder to be someone than to do something. It's a lot harder to avoid murder. Or it's a lot easier to avoid murder than to avoid thoughts of anger that you'd like to harm someone. It's a lot easier to avoid adultery than to avoid lustful thoughts. It's a lot easier to take an oath and be honest in a moment than to be honest throughout your life. And yet Jesus says, this is the righteousness that I'm calling you to. Something that's difficult, been impossible, which leads us to the final point, and that is that Christ alone can change a broken heart. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is so damning to each and every person on the face of the earth. Each and every one of us have failed God. Each and every one of us are not the people that God wants us to be. And I believe that's part of the point here. That Jesus wants us to despair of ourselves and our own righteousness. To despair of our own works. To despair of getting, he wants us to get off that treadmill where we're trying to earn his salvation and become someone in our own strength. And he wants us to fling ourselves upon his mercy. And when we do that, he can change us. We can't change ourselves. We might be able to keep aspects of the law, but we can't change our hearts. Only Jesus can do that. And when we trust in him, that's what he does. Hebrews 8, chapter 10, speaking of the covenant that God would make with his people, says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws into their hearts and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. 
For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. If we're not holy, we're not healthy. Christ calls us to something far deeper than simply external righteousness. He calls us to a change of heart. But we can't be changed unless we fling ourselves upon his mercy. It's a man by the name of John James who tells his story of coming out of a life of drug abuse and how God, through his grace, gave him a new heart. He says this, in high school, life revolved around sports and popularity. My life got further out of control with each passing year. The weekend parties of my freshman year became week-long parties by my senior year as casual drinking metastasized into alcoholism. I began selling drugs and I was also introduced to cocaine. And cocaine stole my soul. Then I started selling cocaine. I became a monster, a liar, and a thief. I used everyone and everything to serve myself. I didn't care who I hurt. I decided to make drastic changes. And I enlisted in the U.S. Coast Guard. And although boot camp gave me some much-needed structure and discipline, it couldn't change my heart. I fell back into the same way of living. Then God put Art Thompson in my life. Art was a young kid who had just joined the Coast Guard. Art loved Jesus, and he loved me. He faithfully shared the gospel with me, always making a point to say, Jesus loves you, bro. He described how Jesus had changed his life. Art had a serious joy that I wanted in my own life. I just didn't know how to get it. 2008, I was restationed to California. Despite the change in scenery, the same problems with drinking and drugs followed me. But then I started attending church. The problem was that I still conceived the gospel as a call to change myself through willpower. I stopped drinking and doing drugs and started exercising self-control. I had saved myself. And then the bottom fell out. While celebrating New Year's Eve with some old friends, a round of casual drinking turned into an all-out binge. I was so drunk that I blacked out. I drove home in a state of despair, convinced I could never truly change. Arriving back, I thought I'd listen to a sermon to clear my mind. I'd learned about a preacher named John Piper. Before long, I found myself captivated. Piper's preaching about God, sin, justice, and hell was unlike anything I'd ever heard. For the first time, I understood that I was guilty of more than doing bad things. I had sinned against God and deserved his judgment. Two nights later, I listened to another Piper sermon, one on John 3.16. Depending on how we respond to what he preached, we would either spend eternity with God in heaven or apart from him in hell. I distinctly remember time slowing to a crawl as he said those words. I was replaying the last 10 years of my life, the lying, the drunkenness, the drug use, all my terrible sins against the holy God. I felt the crushing weight of it, and I knew I was going to hell. And then I knew I wasn't. The burden of my sin fell off in an instant, replaced with the knowledge that Jesus was Lord and God had saved me. That moment led to an immediate and radical change as God removed my heart of stone. God calls us to a holiness. Holiness that we can't achieve on our own. Holiness that only God can wrought in our life. And when we come to him, he changes us. He forgives us of our trespasses. He forgives us when we fall short. And he starts to form us into his image so that we start to look like the Sermon on the Mount. We start to look like the people that he's called us to be. So if you're here and you've never entered into a relationship with Christ, it's not about doing things. It's not about let's, let's try to keep all the laws, let's try to fix myself. That's always going to fail. 
Only Christ can fix a broken heart. It's only when we fling ourselves on his mercy. We ask him to come into our lives and change us, to guide us, to forgive us. That's when we experience transformation. For those of us who are believers, maybe we've started to go apart from Christ. Maybe we've started to look more like the world than like Christ. The answer is not simply to try harder. The answer is to get close to Christ. Because when we get close to Christ, that's when we start to change. That's when his spirit guides us. That's when his spirit transforms us to be the people that he wants us to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you that you are a just and holy God. And that you call us to live lives of righteousness. But that you've provided a way for us. None of us can be the people that you want us to be. We've all fallen short of your glory. And we thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us so that we might have life. So that we would be forgiven. So that we could have an eternal home with you. And also so that we would look like you. Lord, I pray that we would be transformed by your grace. That we would love you, love those around us with all of our hearts. That as we look to the Old Testament, we all know there's things in there that seem strange, seem kind of crazy to us. And as we look at the Old Testament, help it to guide us to love you, to love those around us more, Lord. Lord, help us to be a people who are marked by those two things, marked by a love for you, love for those around us, and that we would exemplify that inner holiness that only you can bring to our hearts. In Christ's name I pray, amen.